0: following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. The theme for our Christmas service this year is God Drew Near. And this year, we want to look at the Christmas story through the lens of a lost human race that is in need of rescue. Are we on our own to figure what life is supposed to be about by ourselves? Is there anyone out there who can help us find our way to help us understand what is the meaning of life? Or is life nothing more than what we make of it? As I think about all of this, I was reminded of a recent uh, New York Daily News headline uh, that I think some of you may have come across, which basically said, God isn't fixing this. It was an angry response to the knee-jerk reaction of many politicians who tweeted that their prayers were with the victims and families of those affected by the San Bernardino mass shooting. And underlying that angry headline is the implicit message why don't you do something more worthwhile than just pray? Why don't you do something valuable, something that'll actually contribute to the problem than something as useless as prayer? As we're gonna see through the Christmas story that we're gonna look at next week, we'll see how God provided the answer to these ultimate questions of life in the form of a child. But before we get there in next week's message, I want to begin the exploration of this theme God drew near uh, by looking today at the life of a man named Job, a man who lived many years before Jesus came to the earth. And so the scripture reading for this morning comes from Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. It's a bit of a longer text this morning, but so please bear with me as we take a look at it together. It says, in the land of Oz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. You know, in the very first verse of the book of Job, we're told that Job was a righteous man who feared God and rejected evil. Through everything that will unfold in the rest of the story of Job, this initial description of Job is never challenged. It's never taken away from him. Job lived a life, we're told, that was good and pleasing to God. In fact, this is not some anonymous narrator's take on Job. It's God's own assessment of him, as we saw in verse 8. That's what the Lord said to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God, and shuns evil. But then, interestingly, Satan responds by hurling an accusation against both God and Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, is there any surprise that Job follows you, trusts you, loves you? I mean, why wouldn't he? You basically bless them with a charmed life. He's in this bubble of blessing, of protection, that anybody would be jealous of. God, who wouldn't? love you, and follow you under those circumstances. And I think this is an accusation that all of us need to wrestle with, need to take to heart. The question is this, do you believe God is good? Well, if so, why? Why? Satan's argument is that you believe in God's goodness more as a reflection of your favorable circumstances that you've experienced in life rather than any genuine confession of faith that is really rooted in his character and what you really believe about him. Another way that we could put it is simply like this. Maybe you're just one major tragedy away from denying God's goodness in your own life. I think everyone needs to wrestle with this question. Why do I think God is good if I do think he's good? Is it nothing more than a reflection that I feel like my life has been good? And so if my life is good, God is good. But what happens when tragedy strikes? Like it did to Job that day. And so Satan makes a wager with God. Take that hedge of protection away from your servant. Let me take a crack at him. And I bet you he'll curse you to your face. And so God allows suffering on an almost unimaginable scale to assault Job. He first loses his entire wealth, then his children, and then eventually even his health. And yet despite everything that happens to Job, it seems like he's going to remain faithful and prove Satan wrong. Chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. But this posture of quiet acceptance doesn't last. Lying there in the ash heap of his ruined life, scratching the sores on his skin with broken shards of pottery to try to relieve himself from the discomfort and the the itchiness, Uh, Job's perspective on his life and on God begins to subtly change. And in chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, Job makes this horrible confession. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. This is pretty dark stuff. Job is basically cursing the day he was born. He is wrestling with a question that I think many have struggled with in every generation. Can a person's life be so bad that you can come to the legitimate conclusion that it isn't worth living. That it isn't worth living. In other words, non-existence would have been a better option than existence under these circumstances. Job goes on in verses 23 to 26 of chapter 3. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Job begins asking questions that have never occurred to him before when things were going well in his life. He's asking, why did God even give me life if this is what he was going to do with my life? I mean, it's like a cruel joke. Why would God do this to me? Let me experience such blessing only to take it all away from me and ruin me. And then Job reveals his secret fear that he had been dreading all of his life. It it was too easy. I always knew I had it too good. I knew that one day this charmed life would come to an end. I knew that one day the other shoe, the other shoe was going to drop, you know. Um, my worst fears have been realized. Job doesn't remain alone in his suffering. It's not long before three friends arrive on the scene to comfort him. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, it says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was hearing about the tragic news of their friend. They travel to Job's house to comfort him. And when they arrive, they are overcome by the sheer sight of what they see, of a man that is so broken and ruined that they don't even recognize him as their friend. And so they realize there are no words here. There are no words that you can offer to a guy like this. And so all they do is they just sit with him and for an entire week straight, all they do is they cry with him. It would have been so good if they just kept their mouth shut. (laughs) But the problem is after the week is over, they begin talking. And they decide they're going to give Job some good words of advice. And this is where it all goes downhill. Because Job's friends embrace a view of God held by probably, you could say, the majority of people in that time. And arguably even in our day, which is simply this. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. It's like karma, right? You get what you deserve in life. And they, with that viewpoint, they begin to spew their, quote, wisdom on Job. Chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever, de- ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Chapter 22, verse 21, submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. This is the logic of of Job's friends. If bad stuff is happening to you, you are a bad person. If good things happen to you, you are a good person. And so the logic, with that logic, they mercilessly attack Job and interrogate him. Job, what have you done to deserve this in your life? What have you done to deserve this? Why is God punishing you right now? Because as far as we can tell, Job, from our limited human perspective, you are living an exemplary life. You look like a good man to us. You look righteous, but your suffering has revealed a much deeper, darker secret about your life that clearly we don't know about. So what they say to him is, confess. Confess. Fess up, Job and acknowledge what's going on behind the scenes for which God is punishing you. This theology of Job's friends reminds me of a few years back when we witnessed the crazy rise of Tim Tebow, the outspoken Christian quarterback for the Denver Broncos. Um, Tebow became famous for his off-the-field pose, kneeling in prayer at the sidelines of just about every football game. In fact, It became a verb, didn't it? We called it Tebowing, right? Anytime we kneel, it became a meme on the internet. Um, On the field, with Tebow commanding the offense, uh, he led the Broncos to one of the most improbable seasons imaginable. One come from behind, fourth quarter win, after another, right? And it wasn't long before the chatter began. There must be angels on the field causing tacklers to miss and guiding Tebow's football passes through the air into the hands of the receivers. You see, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. But the problem is that Job had a clear conscience. He knew that there wasn't some secret life that he was hiding from others or from God. That would explain his suffering. And so the quiet accepting Job gives way to a new noisy Job that refuses to take things lying down. Chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And at the heart of Job's bitterness and complaint is a cry for justice. Justice. Job chapter 10, verse 1 to 3 I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, Do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Job 13, verse 22 to 24 Then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Job 23, verse 3-7, If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There, an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. You see, Job believes if only I could get a hearing with God himself, I could plead my case for innocence. And I know the God that I worship. I know that he's a God of justice. I know that he would vindicate me regardless of the accusations of my friends. The problem, though, as Job says, is God is nowhere to be found. My judge hides from me. He hides his face. You know, in this sense, Job's cry for justice reveals that at least at this stage in his journey, His theology is really not that much different from that of his friends. I think the truth is, this is Job's perspective as well. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. It's just that Job thinks he's one of the good people. And so he doesn't understand why the suffering is falling on him. And so that is why he asks for justice. I don't deserve any of this, God. This is unfair. This is not right. Why are you doing this to me? I'm one of the good guys. I'm on your team. Why are you doing this to me? What's interesting to me is this, is that somewhere in the midst of Job's cries for justice, a subtle shift begins to occur in his search for understanding. And what Job comes to realize is that what he needs more than justice is wisdom. What he needs more than justice is wisdom. Through his suffering, Job comes to realize, my view of God has been too simplistic. In other words, Job wanted a God who was there at his beck and call, at his every command, always there to deliver him in his time of trouble, to rescue him from any problems that he would encounter. He was basically, in essence, saying, here I am, a righteous man. Why aren't you doing anything to help me? Why aren't you fixing my problems? Why are you just passively watching as I suffer like this? Job 28, verses 1 to 4 and 9 to 12. It says, There is a mine for silver in a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farther, farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft. It places forgotten by the. Um... Sorry, the second slide has gone here. Uh, in Shafts, places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men he dangles and sways. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? In other words, Job marvels at the resourcefulness an ingenuity of human nature, our ability to dig into the core of the earth, to mine these rocks out of which we smelt metals, to produce all kinds of stuff like swords and spears and plows. And he says, look at what man is able to accomplish by his wisdom, by his intelligence, and yet when it comes to the deepest questions of life, Why do we suffer? Where is God in our pain? He says, where do we find that wisdom? Where do we find that knowledge? We are lost. We're impotent. We don't understand. Um, Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? I think the same could be said of our generation as well. Despite all of our advances in science and technology and all of the things that we understand about how life works, how the world works, are we any closer without God to answering the ultimate questions about life? About what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of suffering? You know, I was just scouring the internet, reading a whole bunch of these online discussions going on about this whole issue of the meaning of life. And I've done this on other sermons before, too, and this is just some of the wisdom that I've dug up out there that seems to be our best shots at this question. This one guy posted on this board, what is the meaning of life? And these are some of the replies. I don't think it has any meaning as such. What is the meaning of a piece of glass or rock? Don't know. I guess get a nice job and earn enough money to entertain my life? To me, I think there are only two meanings to life. Advance others and reproduce. Let's be a biologist or something like that. Uh, And then this last one, uh, ball is life. That sounds like my son, actually, because he says that a lot. And every time he says that, I cringe, okay? Um, This is our best shot at it, right? What is the meaning of life? Who knows, right? It's, it's flippant the way people are answering because in a way what they're saying is, why are you even trying to answer a dumb question like that? Who can even answer that? When everything is going easy in our lives, we tend to have a pretty simplistic view of life. Life is good because God is good. No doubts, no complaints. Often it's not until we go through suffering that we begin to search for deeper answers to the meaning of life. And so after repeated cries for justice, Job is brought to the place in his journey where he asks the most important question. Where can I find this wisdom? Where can I find it? goes on in verse 13 to 17 of chapter 28. Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Job goes on in verses 23 to 28, God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it, and he said to man, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. In other words, what Job comes to the conclusion of is that true wisdom can only be given by God alone. After everyone has had their say, taking their best shot at explaining the meaning of life, at the end of the book of Job, God finally appears to Job and sheds some much-needed light to the whole situation. Chapter 38, verse 1 through 3, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then over the next several chapters, it seems like God basically steamrolls over Job with one question after another Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? How did I put the stars in the sky? You explain that to me, Job. Can you explain the strange behavior of all the wild animals in nature? Do you understand their rhythms, their cycles? And it basically seems like all God is doing is bullying Job, shouting him down, saying, you speak out of ignorance, you don't even know what you're talking about. But I think something subtler is going on in what God says to Job in these verses. Because I think what God is doing is that Job is invited to see a much bigger God whose rule over his creation is much more complicated than he realizes. In other words, What God is saying to Job is this. You think you've got me figured out. You think you totally understand me. And out of that understanding, you're accusing me of all the wrong I've done against you. But he says, I am in control, but you have no idea how I control my world. Even though everything appears chaotic and meaningless, God is saying, I still nevertheless control it. I have a purpose for everything. And he illustrates this in many ways in these final chapters. One way is by talking about desert rain. He talks about why does it rain in the desert? In Job chapter 38, verse 25 to 27, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. You see, he's saying, Job, can you explain why I make it rain in the desert? And overnight, the grass sprouts in the wilderness just to wither away and die a few weeks later, where nobody even benefits from it. Nobody lives and there's no agriculture there. And says, Job, you explain to me why I make it rain in the desert. Can you tell me that? And then he says, as a second example, take a look at the ridiculousness of the ostrich. He says, Job, explain to me this ridiculous creature if you can. Chapter 39, verse 13 to 17. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them. That some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not, God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Saying, what a stupid creature, you know? Like this animal makes no sense in a world where there's a God that created that, that animal. But then at the very end, in verse 17 it says, Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse." And He says, Job, do you understand why I created the ostrich, a gigantic winged bird that cannot fly and yet runs faster than a horse? He says, you know, in the world that I've created, there is a place for ostriches. You may not understand it, but in my world, it makes sense. In my good pleasure, there is a place for desert rains, And for ostriches. God says to Job in chapter 40, verse 8 to 9, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Basically, God is saying to Job, You are putting me on trial out of your own ignorance and lack of understanding of my ways. I am a God of justice. But my justice is not as simple or simplistic as you think it is. Chapter 42, verse 1 to 6, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you, you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. At the very end of the story, Job comes to a place of humble acknowledgement that God's ways are infinitely more complicated than he ever realized. He had put God in the box of his own simplistic views of the world. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And out of that understanding, his case against God centered on the argument, I'm one of the good guys. So why are all these bad things happening to me? But he eventually learned the wisdom of silence, of trusting in God's sovereign control, even when things don't seem to make sense. David Van Bema writes, Here is the classic evangelical understanding. Suffering is not an injustice nor a punishment. Rather, it is a harrowing invitation to a higher dialogue. I love that phrase. It's a harrowing invitation to a higher dialogue. Like Job, when suffering enters our life, it begins a painful but necessary conversation with God that will expose your true beliefs about him and how he governs his world. Can God be trusted? Is he really in control? Let me wrap up this message with a passage that's found in the middle of this great book. In the midst of Job pleading his case against God, we find these wonderful words in chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eye. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. In Jewish tradition, there was a title given to a specific type of person known as a redeemer. This redeemer was typically a relative who would basically serve as a champion for somebody in need of trouble. It was a familial commitment to say, if you are in dire straits, if you are in need of help, I will come to your aid. I will rescue you. So it went something like this. If somebody murders you, I will be your redeemer. I will avenge your death, you know? Uh, We see it illustrated beautifully in the book of Ruth when Ruth became a widow when her husband died, and Boaz became her redeemer, basically saying, I will marry you so that you can still have a future, so that you can bear children. And what Job says in the midst of all of his suffering is this, somewhere, somewhere out there, I know I have a redeemer. I know that it's not going to be only up to me to justify myself. But I have a redeemer who is going to stand up for me in my trial, on my defense. What's interesting is when you really study this passage, these verses, it's clear that Job believes that redeemer is God himself. Now this raises an interesting dilemma. Because as many have pointed out, through everything else that Job declares in this book, he believes God is his judge. So the question is this. How can God be both my judge and my champion, my defender? How can he be simultaneously the one who accuses me and defends me? Well, this is where I think we cannot understand even the Old Testament without the person of Jesus Christ. Because I think the fullness of what Job was confessing was looking ahead to what Christ accomplished on the cross. On that cross, God became both accuser and defender because the righteous demands of God, because of our sins, were satisfied on that cross because of Christ, our champion, who died in our stead. Tim Keller says, If we ask the question, Why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? and we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be because He doesn't love us. It can't be that He is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that He was willing to take it on Himself. You know, the Bible doesn't give a full explanation of the understanding of suffering. But when we see the cross The message is this. One explanation cannot be because he's heartless and doesn't care. Because he entered into our suffering when he sent his son to die on the cross. Owen Strachan says this. What happens when Tim Tebow loses? Has God capriciously retracted his blessing on this all-American golden boy who runs like a lion yet speaks like a Sunday school teacher? It may be that Tebow will succeed in spectacular fashion. It may be that he will have the worst game of his life. Either way, the Bible assures us that God loves his chosen. God is orchestrating every detail of their lives, and God will lead them straight through success or failure to the end of all things. Sometimes God grants believers great victories, and sometimes he asks them to walk through the fire. This is true whether it is experienced on the football field, in the office, or in the country that rewards outspoken Christianity with a sword to the throat. Perhaps this sounds like a cop-out, but if it does, remember the one whom Christians worship. Jesus Christ was the Son of God in human form. It was the will of God to bruise him, and through his vicarious death and life-giving resurrection, to make a way to heaven for fallen mankind. There is no greater reminder than this, that God uses suffering in the lives of believers to accomplish his will. Whether as with Joseph, he grants Christians incredible accomplishment and wealth, or whether as with Job, he leads them steadily through the valley of the shadow of death. He loves them all the same. Sometimes we remember it through tremendous hardship, suffering, even to the point of death, that his people gain the greatest victories. That is the message of the cross where an innocent man was crucified, naked and gasping on behalf of the guilty. It is the lodestar of every Christian, the confession that no one can stymie, whether we make our way through life as a mailman, a child with Down syndrome, or a football star. Let's pray. As we spend some time this Advent season reflecting on the incarnation of Jesus, becoming a man, coming to the earth as a baby, um, I want us to spend uh, this season reflecting on this theme of God drew near. In the midst of all the questions that we have about how life works, why there is suffering, what is the meaning of life, um, I think we're invited by God to reflect on What is the real foundation? What are the pillars of our theology, what we really believe about God? Because I've been a pastor long enough to know that for many people who say that God is good, the truth is they really are just one personal tragedy away from witnessing the crumbling of their faith. And the truth is God is only so good as the circumstances in my life fall in my favor. That's when God is good. But the moment suffering visits me, I start questioning his goodness. And I think it's not uncommon, this experience of Job, to shake our fist angrily at God in our finite, limited understanding and say, where is this God of justice? Because basically, justice translates to everything good ought to happen in my life because I deserve it. And what God says is what he said to Job that day. Would you pervert my justice to justify yourself? Do you really even know what you're talking about? You've put me in a box of your own simplistic conclusions about how you think the God of the universe ought to govern his creation. But he says, you know, I am good. I am loving. I care intensely about you. But in that care and love for you, the way that I'm going to work in your life is so much more complicated than you even realize. Explain to me the rains in the desert. Explain to me the flightless bird. If you can explain those things, then maybe you can explain me. But there are so many things that you just cannot understand. And what it calls for is not a cry for justice but a heart of understanding and a spirit of wisdom and submission and surrender and faith. That's what I would invite you to in this moment is to pray that prayer, to say, God, sometimes when suffering does come in my life, I feel so disoriented, I feel so lost, I feel so angry, I feel so bitter. But root me in that faith, that childlike faith of simply believing and trusting in you. And believing that even when I don't understand, even when things are so complex that I can't even begin to fathom what you're doing, nevertheless, I will trust. Because as Paul confessed, if you would give us your only son, what would you withhold from me? The cross is a reminder of God's commitment to me that everything he does in my life is for my good. Let's pray.